Hello, listeners, and welcome to Season 4 of Standing Post. I'm your host, Cody Starkin, and our guest this month has spent more than 30 years of service to the country as a special agent for the U.S. Secret Service. Our guest began his career in 1989 as a special agent assigned to the Detroit field office and rose through the ranks of the agency with various assignments, such as the Grand Rapids Residence Office, the Presidential Protection Division, and served as special agent in charge of congressional affairs where he worked legislative initiatives that affected the Secret Service. I would also like to let everybody know that we have a small intermission at the 38-minute mark, so when you hear the podcast theme music, that's your cue to take a break if you'd like. Now, please welcome to the show the 22nd Deputy Director of the United States Secret Service, Mr. Ferran Paramore. Sir, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being on here and taking the time out of your busy schedule to be able to talk to me about your roles and responsibilities as the deputy director of the Secret Service. But before we begin, do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Uh, sure. My name is uh, Farhan Paramore, and I currently serve as the deputy director of the United States Secret Service. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show, sir. And before we start kind of talking about your roles and responsibilities, I'd like to maybe uh, get to know you a little bit better about who you are, where you came from, and um, how you you know, even started your journey in the Secret Service. So um, if you don't mind, uh, where did you, where'd you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Specifically there, what, um, how do you describe Detroit in your own words? Detroit is a blue-collar city. As most people know, it is Motown, not just from uh, the different musical groups uh, from back in the 50s and 60s, uh, but primarily for, for the, from the auto industry that Detroit is probably most known for. So I was uh, born and raised in northwest Detroit and uh, fond, fond memories. I try to get home as often as I can. Now, you said Motown. Are you a music aficionado? Do you no, have a... not at all. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. Although, I should say, uh, I was made to take piano lessons for nine years. I cannot play a lick now, <laughs> but I did take piano lessons. We, uh, Mrs. Enslow used to come to our house uh, every Friday afternoon, um, and, and my brother and I uh, took piano lessons for nine years, so... <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, I I just wanted to ask that question because you brought it up, and sure. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to answer that. It's um, before the Secret Service. What was life like for you? So I have always had an interest in criminal justice, and so <clears throat> if you had asked me when I was eight or nine, ten years old, I I would say I wanted to be a veterinarian. I absolutely love animals. Uh, I think I've had every type of pet that you can have except for a cat. Uh, nothing against uh, cats or, you know, those who love cats, but um, never wanted a cat. But uh, several dogs, hamsters, guinea pigs, rabbits, turtles, snakes, frogs, you name it, I had it as a pet growing up. I still love animals to this day. So when I was, you know, probably seven, eight, nine, I, I, my goal was to be a veterinarian. And then I think as time went on and I realized that, oh, you pretty much have to go to medical school <laughs> to be a veterinarian and all that science, uh, then things started to change. But my, my father was a U.S. Marshal for 25 years. So <clears throat> growing up in a law enforcement family with a lot of his friends and colleagues uh, with the Sheriff's Department, I have a cousin who retired from the Detroit Police Department. So I, I think it 
the law enforcement interests was somewhat natural there. Again, with my dad being a U.S. Marshal, he actually had keys to the federal courthouse in downtown Detroit. In the basement of the federal courthouse, it, to my knowledge, it still exists, is like a seven-point firing range. So as a little child, a little kid, probably eight, nine, ten years old, on Saturday mornings, I used to beg my father, and I would say, Daddy, Daddy, I want to go shoot. I want to go shoot today. And several times we would go down to the courthouse because, again, he had keys to everything. So and my brother and I and my father would go down to the courthouse and, and shoot uh, various handguns, uh, pistols uh, that he owned. And so do you think that was that first exposure to law enforcement that may have, like, led that path to? I, I'm sure I have no doubt that there was that was one of the factors. Uh, again, some of his uh, friends and colleagues that came over were, again, in the sheriff's department. Again, my cousin was a Detroit police officer. I just always thought it would be fun to, air quotes, chase the bad guys. And I think as I got a little bit older and I learned about federal law enforcement, again, I just thought it would be really interesting to investigate cases um, and then, again, chase the bad guys and arrest the bad guys. Was the Secret Service your first choice, or did you kind of open up to all law enforcement? I, I, I have to be honest. Um, I attended Michigan State University, um, where I was a criminal justice major. So uh, I graduated from Michigan State in June of 1988. At that time, there was no Internet. Um, so as I was researching the different agencies, you know, I knew about the Drug Enforcement Agency. I knew about ATF, uh, of course, the FBI. So the plan really was to go to college, go to law school, and then go work for the FBI. That was the plan since I was about 12 years old. So um, as I, I think it was my junior year at Michigan State, my father had retired from the U.S. Marshal Service and then began uh, working as basically a, a bank investigator at a, at a bank in Detroit called the National Bank of Detroit at the time really just to have something to do. My, my father had uh, completed about 25 years with the U.S. Marshal Service, and prior to that, he had been in the Marine Corps as a MP. So um, when he started working for National Bank of Detroit, a on a couple of occasions uh, when I was speaking with him, he said, you know, I'm working some really interesting, great cases with the United States Secret Service. You know, you ought to research the Secret Service, because at that time, I have to be honest, I was not as familiar with the financial investigations of the service as much as I was the protection. I think that might have been at the tail end of my sophomore year or early junior year. So I went to the library. <laughs> Again, there was no internet. And did some research on the Secret Service uh, and start learning about the investigative side of the house as far as, uh, you know, the counterfeit currency, that time treasury checks and bonds, things of that nature. Through... My father, working with some of the agents in the Detroit field office, I was able to speak with a couple of them on a couple of occasions talking about the, the investigative mission. So fast forward a little bit after I graduated, I uh, applied to the Secret Service. I also applied to the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, at the time, well, I think it still holds now, for the FBI, you have to be 23 years old. So I couldn't apply to the FBI, I, I don't think at that time. And I don't believe ATF was hiring. So True story. I was going through the process. This was summer of 88, fall of 88. I'll come back to why I mentioned the year. And at the time, 
I was progressing through the application process with the DEA, I thought, pretty rapidly. Several times had to go down to the federal courthouse, and true story, before we moved, on the third floor of the courthouse in Detroit, you walk down one hallway, there was a DEA office, directly across the hallway was the United States Secret Service. So went to the DEA office on several occasions for interviews, testing, things of that nature. And again, the application seemed to be progressing through very quickly. And then for whatever reason, unbeknownst to me, things just kind of stalled. Then in early January or so of 89, uh, the Secret Service seemed to, that application seemed to start picking up very quickly. And where I was, you know, being requested to come down to the office once a month or almost twice a month or so for different things, you know, the polygraph exam or this or that. And true story, on a Thursday afternoon in probably March of 89, I had come back from lunch. I was working for State Farm Insurance Company, like in their fraud division. Uh, I came back from lunch at about one o'clock. I got a call from Doc Watson in the Detroit field office offering me position with the United States Secret Service. So, of course, you know, I uh, readily accepted, uh, was ecstatic, and went about my day. The very next morning, Friday morning, 9 o'clock, DEA called me and offered me a position. And I explained to the gentleman that uh, just yesterday I had accepted a position with the Secret Service, and he said, oh, those guys are great, they're great, you know, they're right across the hall. I'm like, yeah, I know. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, those guys are great. They're great. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of travel. Uh, but I have often thought about what would have happened if DA had called first and Secret Service had called on Friday. So, you know, 32 years later, uh, again, I, I, think, I, I think about that all the time and how lucky and blessed I feel that Secret, <laughs> luckily Secret Service did call first. Yeah, because that's what, for me— uh, one of my favorite questions to ask is just that, like, how do people find their pathway to the Secret Service? And it's always fascinating and how that story happens. I'd like to jump to your first years in the in the Secret Service. Um, sure. Having you or that you said that you started in the Detroit field office. Can you kind of um, paint that picture of the first couple of years within that field office? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first off, what was interesting was that at the tail end of my, I guess, the application process, I was informed that I was going to be going to the Chicago field office, which was great. Chicago, four hours away from Detroit. Uh, Have tons of friends and family over there. I thought it was going to be great. No problem. And then literally about two weeks before I was supposed to start, they said, no, it's going to be Detroit. Okay, that's fine, too. Because it was helpful in that you know your way around the city. I think that was the biggest part. You know, I knew my way around the city, and you knew kind of what parts of town were a little bit more dangerous than others or kind of where things happened, um, if you will. So it, it was really great. We, we started, I started off in the Detroit field office. Um, it was great in that there were three or four other brand new agents that were there. Adrian Andrews uh, was, uh, had started two weeks prior to me in the Detroit field office. Uh, anyway, there were, there were like three or four of us that were brand new agents, less than three years on the job. So we were all very, very eager to really go out and arrest as many people as we could, <laughs> legally, of course. You know, folk, nobody was married, nobody had kids. Uh, the duty desk hated it because we would stay out in the street till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. You'd go to one house, do an interview. They gave you some information. you go somewhere else. 
You know, you interview somebody, you know, that's locked up in the jail. They give you some information. You're off to another interview. So it was great because, again, we were all young and, again, would stay in the street till 11, midnight, uh, and do it all again the very next day. The cases were, we had some really substantive great cases um, in Detroit. Uh, it seemed like almost, oh, at least in a given month, we were doing two, three surveillances. We were executing one, two search warrants. Hundreds of undercover, or participated in hundreds of undercover deals. So it, it was very, very constant, uh, just a lot of fun. You were constantly in the street. Um, if it wasn't your case, it was somebody else's case. Uh, we worked a lot with uh, some of the other agencies in town, ATF, DEA, uh, even Detroit Police Department. We had a great relationship in the law enforcement community there. And then, of course, you know, the protection side of the house. Uh, what was great about it, because, again, the, the winters in Michigan and Detroit can, can be a little brutal, so I always loved getting a post-standing assignment out to California or <laughs> Texas or Florida in January, February, March or so. I'd, I'd almost raise my hand to, to go somewhere, <laughs> so uh, just to break it up a little bit. So that was fun, too, because it, and, and that's what I love about the job over the years. I'll never forget one time Adrian and I, w- we were just really kind of going to go do a meet. We weren't going to do a deal. Um, we had an informant with us that was going to introduce us to, to these guys <clears throat> or to a guy. And we were literally, all of Detroit doesn't have like alleys, you know, where you put your garbage. Um, most of the city does not have alleys, but we were literally in an alley with our uh, informant meeting this bad guy. And um, we get back in the car and this is about 91, 92. So there are no cell phones. Um, and the Detroit field office, I remember Mr. Husted, who was one of the 14 ATSACs, um, radioed us and said, hey, can you guys pull over and tutu the office, meaning call the office. So we found a payphone that really existed back then, <laughs> and uh, we called the office, and he said, hey, listen, you and Adrian um, got hit for a post-ending assignment. You guys leave tomorrow morning. It was about 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. You guys leave tomorrow morning. If you don't need to come to the office, you know, go direct home uh, if you have all your protective equipment. So we still had to come back down to the field office. But the next morning, we fly to L.A. It had to be, it had, I take it, back, it had to be past 92 because President Clinton was president. And we, long story short, we ended up standing post at some house in Beverly Hills that had been used in numerous movies. And there were all these movie stars there. Now, I don't get wrapped up about movie stars. That's, that's not the issue. But it's like on Wednesday, I was in an alley <laughs> in Detroit. Friday evening, I'm standing post at this house that's like worth $50 million where all these movie stars are coming to. What other job can you do that? Where else can, where, you, know, where else can you do that? Um, and that's, what, that's you know, again, what I love about the Secret Service. I do want to jump, if we can, to maybe your phase two and phase three of your career, just to kind of maybe discuss a little bit about your time. I, I was informed that you, uh, were, you were on PPD, or the Presidential Protection Detail, and then maybe we can talk about some of your time with the Office of um, Government and Public Affairs. Sure. Um, so I was assigned to PPD June of 1996. 
till um, approximately December of 2000, January 2001. So uh, reported to D.C. Um, I want to say it was June 24th, if I'm not mistaken. And so obviously it was during the campaign season for then-President Clinton during this, the second campaign. So it, it, was, it was interesting in that, you know, you show up in town. There, we did not do the PDT that agents go through, <laughs> go through now. I'm sorry, what would be, what's uh, PDT? PDT is protective detail training. Okay. So like now when a young agent, he or she is coming in town, and let's say they're going to go to PPD or VPD, uh, they first have to go out to the Raleigh Training Center for approximately a month or so and complete the protective detail training. A lot of PT, a lot of shooting, uh, just different things before agents are assigned to PPD or VPD. But that didn't exist <laughs> back in 1996. We had about a two-week orientation, more or less, in the old executive office building. Uh, I want to say there was about 10 of us uh, that, that were coming in from different locations. And they would take you out to Andrews. They, they showed us where Air Force One is, kind of where you would report if you had to go direct to Andrews to jump on Air Force One, I think they took us over to Bowling to show us where HMX uh, is housed. Uh, the biggest thing I remember, they sent us over to Sorrows to get uh, fitted for our tuxedos. So that if you're ever working and, you know, if, if the president's wearing a tuxedo, you've got to wear a tuxedo. So we had to go over there and get fitted for our tuxes. And that's, that's kind of about it. But obviously it was a campaign season. So the president was gone campaigning. Kind of got thrown right in the fire there, which was great, again, because it was a campaign. And uh, as a brand-new agent, you're typically going to do a lot of airports and LZs and whatnot. So I just remember being on the road, doing uh, part of different advanced teams, doing the airports, which was interesting because, I mean, sometimes in some cities you had airport rallies. In other cities there weren't, there, there weren't rallies at the airport. But I distinctly remember in the fall, so now it's about September, uh, and we, myself, Mike Lee was still in the lead, I believe. John Kirkwood had the major site. We were going to start off in Portland, Maine. And there were obviously some other people on the advance team. So we left out of DCA, going to Portland, Maine. At that time, that's the only real trip we knew about. So I remember checking the weather up in Portland, Maine. And it's, you know, it's fall, still warm down here, but it was starting to get chilly in Portland, Maine. So I kind of brought couple of hev heavier weight suits with me because again it's gonna be you know Portland long story short <clears throat> we go from Portland Maine to Pueblo Colorado to Albuquerque New Mexico we never came home out for about three weeks because we ended up in Albuquerque because President Clinton was doing debate prep in Albuquerque the debates were going to be in LA in about a week or so and I just you know it was like I'm out in Albuquerque where it's like 80 degrees with these suits. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I, should, I won't do this again, you know. But it was great. Again, you, you come into the details what you expect. Uh, I thought it was, it was absolutely great. And, um, you know, kept doing uh, more advances, more advances. And, um, you know, it's one of those things I, I tell a lot of my friends and other people. It's like we live history. That's, that's one of the really cool things about this job. I mean, we live history. What I mean by that is this. So, and again, we don't play politics, right? We don't get involved in that aspect of it, but just, you know, it's situations that you're involved in. So I was working the midnight shift, 10P to 6A, 
I happened to be on the shift when we, when then President Clinton went back home to Little Rock for election night. I remember we landed in Little Rock, like, say, say on Monday night, the election was going to be on Tuesday. So we land, we're pretty much down for the night. <clears throat> and then the next night was the election night, and we're midnights again. So uh, the election's going on, and I remember being at the RON Hotel, standing post, and just kind of thinking to myself, like, you know, I don't really know what's going on because the T, you, you know, you know, there's no, t I mean, there's a TV probably in the security room, but you're like, I wonder is, is he going to win? Is he going to lose? And I won't go too much into it, but it's like, it's, it was just kind of interesting to see the president walking up and down the floor with other people, other senior level staffers from his staff. I do remember they were playing cards a little bit, you know, trying to, cause this was, you know, the returns weren't going to come in to definitively till probably like two, three, four o'clock in the morning. Ultimately, he did win again the second term, as we all know. And then that next night we were working and uh, they had uh, like a big, uh, a big rally, pretty much, I guess, in downtown Little Rock and fireworks and, and whatnot. And it was just interesting to be there. Again, politics aside, it's just interesting to be there to kind of see this live and in person. So luckily, um, I was able to go over to to the First Lady's detail, so Mrs. Clinton's detail at the time. And Mrs. Clinton constantly traveled, which was great. Um, she was always going overseas. Uh, I tell people often, it literally got to the point that if you weren't on the plane for like nine hours, you didn't feel like you really went anywhere because we were just, we were constantly going, you know, somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in, the, in Central America, South America. And she would very often say on these trips, I'm going to tell my husband what a great time I had, and I'm going to bring my husband back. And sure enough, a year later, we'd be back in XYZ country <laughs> with the president. You mm. know, and obviously it's a much bigger production when the president comes. But I can tell you, I mean, I can think of like three or four countries where she would say that. And sure enough, it panned out, you know, in a year, year and a half later or so. So it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, again, the travel, I think that's, that's why. Uh, as much as I had an interest in possibly going out for the counter-assault team, um, again, the, the constant travel that Mrs. Clinton did is kind of what drew me over there. And, of course, I had a few friends over there. And at the time, Mr. Flynn, uh, Donnie Flynn, was the, the 14 over uh, FLD. I had a lot of respect for Mr. Flynn and uh, Anthony Triplett, a fellow Detroiter. Trip was uh, like the whip over there. Yeah, And it, was, and it, 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 it turned out to be great. Uh, did FLD the first time for about 18 months came back in, kind of came back to the shift for, I don't know, several months. Uh, then I had an opportunity to go into to room 89, which is, which is like the logistics office. I think it's room 10 now, but inside the OEOB, and that's where all the logistics for PPD is handled and just learned a lot. Uh, it's kind of behind the scenes of how things move. You're dealing with the, the White House staff, the White House advance office, as far as literally when trips are first coming on the board, uh, you're dealing with the, the Air Force as far as uh, the manifest, car planes, all, all the behind the scenes that makes a trip go, uh, be it a domestic trip or and definitely, of course, an overseas trip. And I was the FLD person in the room. So I did all of the FLD logistics, but you would, per, you would help out, of course, with PPD if they had something going on. So it, it was great because, again, Mrs. Clinton was still traveling overseas quite a bit. So it, it was fun. 
you would adjust your schedule. I remember there was a there was a stint where Mrs. Clinton was going to be like in northern Africa for about a week. We we started off in Tunis, Tunisia. We went to start off. Oh no, she started off in Egypt, and then jumped to Tunis, Tunisia, and then she had like five stops in Morocco. So the time difference was about, I don't know, about eight hours difference. So really, I, I would I would come into work when it was daytime over there, be like over you know middle of the night here, so that I could coordinate with with the folks over there, uh, and then just you know stay in the office till about noon, go home. And then come back in the evening. It, it was uh, it was a lot. It was a lot, but it was fun. Do you feel that position kind of gave you a better understanding of like the the ins and outs and kind of the inner no workings? question. There's no question. Uh, it uh, anyone who does who has done logistics will know um, logistics is very tough uh, when you're trying to move people from point A to point B as far as aircraft and foreign countries and how many people you can get on a C-17 or a C-5 and the working shift and the off shift and uh, who can you get on, who's manifested on Air Force One, who can, who can you get on support, uh, what commercial flights are available to jump from point A to B. It, it, is, a log- it is a logistical game, um, but it's fun, and you really do learn a lot um, from just some of the conversations uh, you learn some of the challenges that the leads are having out in XYZ City domestically, overseas, and you, you understand how to mitigate those. So at that, at that juncture, I had not done a lead yet. So by kind of hearing all this and learning from, truth be told, some, you know, sometimes other people's mistakes or other people's situations, you kind of stored that knowledge so that when I did start doing leads, it was like, okay, this is what we do here. This is what we do here. You know, I got to deal with staff and can I work this out with staff? You know, staff wants to do this. You know, we don't want to do that or that we think that jeopardizes or exposes us. How can we mitigate this? Um, so I think it was great. Uh, I was in there for six months and it was great. I uh, went back to the shift and then that's when I started, uh, you know, did a couple hour wins and then start doing leads. And then, um, lo and behold, got a call one afternoon from um, ATSAC A.T. Smith. Mrs. Clinton was going to be running for the New York Senate in New York. And since I knew a lot of the staffers and had previously been on FLD, A.T. said, hey, would you like to come back over here and be the whip for FLD uh, during um, you know, the upcoming campaign? It's going to be a lot. She's going to be up in New York. As you, I'm sure you've heard, she's running for the Senate because then Senator Moynihan had decided to retire. And uh, I said, sure. And uh, so I jokingly tell people that I lived in New York for 18 months, and it was great. Loved New York. Uh, the guys and ladies up in the New York field office were tremendous. Uh, they, they really felt like they were like an extension of FLD because we were up there every day. And then it got to the point where we just stayed up there. Initially, when we, we started going up to New York, we would just do day trips. Uh, we would go up, you know, out of uh, Andrews, land at LaGuardia, and, um, and then come home. Might go up a day or two later. Then we start, and we were staying in the city at the time in, in, in Manhattan. And then it wasn't until several, uh, three or four or five months later where they bought the house up in Chappaqua, and then we ended up uh, staying, in ter- staying at the Hilton in Terrytown, New York. And then that falls under the White Plains office. So then we got to work with those folks, you know, almost every day. And it was great in New York for 18 months. And one of the things when I look back on it, so, you know, for anybody 
I guess it all depends on maybe where you're coming from. But when you fly into LaGuardia, when you're coming out of DCA, you know, you're, you're pretty much going due north, right? And on the on Mrs. on the plane, it's, it's an Air Force asset. Where I would sit was on the left side of the plane at one of the windows. So going into LaGuardia, you pretty much fly straight up the East River. Um, so to your left is Manhattan. I can't tell you how many times you're, I looked at the Twin Towers. I mean, 50, 60, because we were, we were always doing these trips up there. And, of course, 9-11 happened. Um, so um, there was one time we were with Mrs. Clinton. We were actually out on, not sure if it was a Coast Guard boat, but we went over to Ellis Island. We have some great pictures of the shift of us on the boat with, uh, with uh, towers in the background. So, uh, so did that, uh, finished up my PPD time on, actually on, as the whip on FLD. Um, as we all know, Mrs. Clinton was successful in winning that Senate seat in November of 2000 and rotated off of uh, PPD. I want to say it was very late December if you can, I'd like to maybe touch on your phase three experience and kind of go on some background of any uh, experiences of note you'd like to share with the listeners. Um, and I know at the beginning, um, near the beginning of the interview, I talked about your time as the assistant director of the Office of uh, Government and Public Affairs. Sure. So, I mean, we'll just start with phase three. So, as I mentioned, I kind of I rotated off of PPD. And luckily, I, I was able to throw my name in the hat uh, for a detailee position that, at the time that we had in Congressman Steny Hoyer's office. So Mr. Hoyer at the time sat on a committee that was called Treasury Postal Committee. They oversaw the appropriations for the Treasury Department, which hence at the time we were part of the Treasury Department, right? And then the U.S. Postal Service. Um, at the time, Mr. Hoyer's district in Maryland also encompassed where the James Ray Raleigh Training Center is. It has since been redistricted, and he de- that's not his district anymore. Um, but that was our relationship with Mr. Hoyer. So it was great. Had had always, you know, had somewhat of an interest, um, you know, in, in politics and um, how it impacts us as an agency. So was after several interviews, was a, was selected to go up to Mr. Hoyer's office, started up there, and I think it was like about January 10th or so. And in the position that I was chosen for Mr. Hoyer's office, he had like four or five staffers in his office uh, that handled different, what they call portfolios, different areas of interest. And I would work with one of those individuals and really was a jack-of-all-trades a jack type person. Because again, with Mr. Hoyer being from Maryland, a lot of local issues that they would sometimes not just stay in his Maryland office. They would come into his office up on Capitol Hill. So I ended up working with a lot of uh, some of his staffers in his local office on just different constituent issues uh, in Southern Maryland, which was, which was great. Now, at the time, I was living in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. That wasn't his district, so no conflict of interest or anything there. But it was just really interesting. I mean, dealing with, um, you know, American citizens who sometimes were having issues with government agencies, constituent issues. Um, so it, it, it was really interesting. There were times when uh, different legislation would come in and he would have us review it and you would have to write like a one-page position paper like, hey, what is this, what is this bill about? What is this legislation about? Um, you make a recommendation you know, should I support this or should I not? Uh, again, working with the staff, uh, you know, to, to know where they are. You would do research on different products. So it was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. 
to kind of see how the legislative branch works. In some ways, here's what I almost, I'm not going to say didn't like about it, but here was the challenge. I had come off of PPD where there was all this camaraderie, right? You're at the White House, you're in a staircase, you're on the plane together, you're in the follow-up together, you know, whatever shift you're working, you're off, you know, that kind of thing. It's just a very collaborative effort. And then you go up to this office and you're at a desk and you're kind of by yourself with these tasks to do. And as people will often say, and it is very true, you come off of PPD, you come off of VPD, as they say, the train's going 100 miles an hour. And all of a sudden you jump off and it's hard to get adjusted to. It is very hard to get adjusted to initially because you're just used to go, 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 go. Especially I'm coming off this Senate campaign where we were crisscrossing New York constantly and then doing, you know, doing fundraisers throughout the country. So you're constantly on and off planes and different things like that to this sedentary type lifestyle and not even really working so much with other people. Uh, But after a while, you know, you kind of got used to it. And it was interesting, uh, again, seeing how legislation would come up. There were several nights where you would have to stay there late into the evening because if that legislation was going to be on the floor and then various amendments were going to be offered, you needed to be ready to address, are we for that amendment? Are we against that amendment? So it was, it was interesting to kind of see behind the scenes, like how that works a little bit. Um, and I'll never forget, of course, you know, I, I, was, I was on the Hill on 9-11. Um, I'll never forget that Tuesday morning, I was in the Rayburn building, uh, fifth floor. And because of Mr. Hoyer's uh, seniority and tenure, his office looked out. We had a beautiful view of the Capitol Dome. And I remember sitting there, and we were watching the television. Uh, when the f- I don't, We didn't see it, but, of course, we turned to it was Channel 4, so we're watching the Today program. And we we're all making this assumption that, oh, my God, how did a— you know, and we thought it was a smaller plane. We had no idea. Um, but you're seeing the smoke come out of the first tower, and you're like, my God. You know, now, mind you, remember what I just said a little bit ago? Hun- I'm not going to say hundreds, but literally 40, 50, 60 times, if not more, when we would fly to DCA and we would fly to LaGuardia, and we'd fly, and the towers would be on my left, right? So you, I'm thinking to myself, how is that possible? You know, does somebody have a medical situation or something? And then the next thing you know, you're watching the television, and I think the, the second plane hit. And almost simultaneously, it felt like U.S. Capitol Police came running through the hallways, and they were banging on the doors. And they were like, get out, get out of the building, get out of the building. So we had a little office, and Mr. Hoyer's office was down the hall, so we all kind of came out in the hallway together. Like I said, we were on the fifth floor, and I remember them walking over to the elevators, and I was like, negative, we're not getting on the elevator, stairs. And, you know, obviously they all knew I was the Secret Service agent, and like, okay, we're going to do it for us. So we take the stairs down, we get outside, and this wasn't a saying back then, but it was like, we're not standing here, move. And we ended up walking east on Pennsylvania Avenue past the Library of Congress and a couple more streets up um, to where there's like restaurants and coffee shops and and whatnot. And I think, you know, we were able to look inside of some building and you could see on television what was going on. Once again, 2001, I remember going to a payphone. There were cell phones by then, but 
most people didn't own their own cell phone. And I remember calling back to the office, and they, they told me what they knew, what we knew on television. And uh, Mr. Hoyer and his staff, they knew somebody who lived very nearby. So from my recollection, initially they went there. And I came back to headquarters. Um, I walked to my car. I got in my car. And, well, I tried to drive back to headquarters. Downtown streets were a parking lot. Uh, I got about two blocks, th- two blocks from Capitol Hill, if I'm not mistaken, three blocks. And obviously nobody was really paying attention to traffic lights and things of that nature. And I remember pulling my car up on the curb, like it was a grassy curb somewhere near the mall. I didn't have anything in my car. My radio hadn't been coded uh, recently. Uh, I turned the radio off. I left the windows down because I knew that if another law enforcement agency came up and they would want to, they might, I don't want them to think it was a suspicious vehicle. So I left it open like if somebody wanted to come run a canine or something. And I walked back to headquarters because there was no way, it, it would have taken me hours to drive. That's a five-minute drive on a regular day. And uh, walked back to headquarters, reported into GPA, and they had, um, I want to say it was Mark Lavinia. Mark and I went outside with, uh, we put on like these Secret Service raid jackets, and we blocked off H Street. And we, Mark and I were at 9th and H, and there were two other guys on the other side at 10th and H, because we weren't, we weren't going to let any cars drive in front of the building. And uh, stayed at headquarters till about 7 o'clock. And then we, uh, they sent me out to Andrews because of what I hadn't realized, a number, of member, a number of congressmen had been relocated, and they were supposed to be coming back into Andrews and then motorcading back to the Capitol. And due to succession, uh, I was instructed, you know, get your car in that motorcade. Uh, roger that. I go out to Andrews. I get into the DV lounge. And they ended up choppering members of Congress back to the east front. So I called in and I said, hey, there's no motorcade. They choppered back. They said, okay, fine, discontinue. And that was about 8 o'clock that night. the 22nd uh, Deputy Director of the Secret Service. I am absolutely humbled and honored. It is a tremendous privilege, thankful uh, that Director Murray selected me to be the 22nd Deputy Director. Uh, And as I said, humbled. It is a daunting thought sometimes because of the responsibility that goes along with it. And knowing that working with the director and all of the other assistant directors and just everyone on the executive board, the challenge that we have because, you know, we have approximately almost 8,000 employees that are depending on us to go out and get the requisite financial resources that we need to get the legislation that we need to make this a better agency, to um, continue to make improvements uh, across the board in certain areas. So, um, I mean, that's the, that's the thought that's on my mind all the time is, is that responsibility. I feel like there's a huge weight on my shoulders that, again, as a team, right, everything we do as a team, no one person is going to get this done, you know, with all due respect, not the director, not the deputy, 
you know, individuals. It is a team effort collectively. All the assistant directors, all the chiefs, the CFO, the COO, collectively, uh, along with all of the DADs, along with the SACs and everybody. It is a huge team effort for all of us. But that's the, you know, how I feel that, okay, you know, I've been thankful and blessed to have this opportunity, but now this is what you must do. And that's what stays in my mind all the time. And so for those individuals that may not know specifically the roles and responsibilities of the deputy director, do you mind kind of explaining that to the listeners? Sure. As the deputy director, I mean, primarily, um, I, I, I oversee the operational um, directorates of the agency. So obviously the Office of Protective Operations, uh, A.D. Cheeto, uh, and A.D. Cheeto does a fabulous job. Uh, the Office of Investigations, currently uh, A.D. Uh, Jeremy Sheridan. Uh, again, Tech, Office of Technology with Chief DePietro, IGL with uh, Matt, uh, Matt Miller, and SII with uh, Mr. Habershat. So all of the operational directorates uh, fall under my purview. So I work with those ADs, and we try to address uh, different challenges and issues that they have in those directorates to you know, imp- improve things. So I work with Mr. Mulligan, who's our chief operating officer, and Mr. Mulligan as a COO, he oversees the CFO, the CIO, HUM, and the, the business lines of the agency. So there's a tremendous amount of crossover, um, probably almost nine out of 10 meetings, George and I have those meetings together because there's just a tremendous amount of crossover. But again, when it comes to the operational uh, side with OPO, uh, I will sit with Ms. Cheadle and discuss different issues, um, chat, you know, different issues that she may have, uh, Chief Sullivan and Assistant Chief Dyson in the uniform division to say, okay, th- this is the issue, you know, how can we address this? So under the director's strategic goals um, and within your capacity, is there anything, do you have any goals set, any objectives, like, uh, is there anything you're trying to achieve? I, I think our, our biggest focus collectively is uh, increasing the staffing of the agency. Again, as most people know, uh, our goal is to increase the staffing by 2025. As, as we kind of jokingly say, 90, 95, 95 by 25. That, that, that's our tagline. We're sticking with it. So that's what our focus is. And, and what I mean by that when I say focus, what people one of the things that I would encourage uh, people if they, have, if they ever have the opportunity is to come work in headquarters. This is the business end of what we do. And I don't think I would have ever been afforded this opportunity because having been the assistant director and then what was GPA, Government and Public Affairs, and what became IGL, Intergovernmental and Legislative Affairs, I worked on the Hill I worked with, uh, with folks on the Hill and our appropriators up on the Hill. I learned about the budget and how the budget works. So very often, some of my colleagues, occasionally when I travel or I see folks in town, and they say, oh, well, you know, why don't we ask for more money? We do. There's no question. We do. Every director I've known that I've worked with, from Director Sullivan to Director Pearson to Director Alice, Director Clancy, Director Murray, we ask, we always ask for more money. Uh, anybody who thinks otherwise, flat out, you're wrong. <laughs> we do. Uh, how do I know? I've been in the room when they've asked for more money. I've seen the documents where we're petitioning uh, the Department of Homeland Security. We're appealing things to the Office of Management and Budget. 
And when we're up on the Hill dealing with our with the chairwoman, you know, Roy Ballard from the House Appropriations Committee or on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Um, but as we can all imagine, we're all Americans. We're all taxpayers, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, the, what is it? The, our government, we have a $27 trillion deficit uh, growing every day, every minute. So there are finite resources out there. It is not an endless pot of money. So, But we have to articulate to the department, to OMB, and to the Hill why we need certain funding. And we, we, we do that. But again, there's finite resources. So that's the challenge for us always to do that. So uh, I would just encourage folks, um, if you ever have an opportunity to come in uh, to work in headquarters, to work in the CFO's office, or to work in any office in here, uh, Office of Investigations, or OPO, and see the behind the scenes of how things get done. Work in procurement. It's, it's, it's not, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's not necessarily a lot of fun, but it's the business side of how we do things. I mean, office moves, purchasing vehicles, purchasing equipment. It, it, again, the business side of what we do. You know, there's not anybody else. Uh, I love to travel. I love to do uh, sites. I, I always thought of doing a protective site as kind of like a, a challenge because staff wants to do something that's kind of crazy. And, you know, your job was, as a site agent, was to try to figure out how you can kind of work with staff and uh, without jeopardizing our security plan to co- develop a security plan around whatever staff wanted to do. Um, so that really when that site was over and the protectee left your site, we, of course, accomplished our goal. And we didn't yield on any of our, our, our principles. But staff was happy with their site. And the general public who came to that site also had a good experience. That kind of gave me a sense of pride. But at the end of the day, I'm really an investigator at heart. There was, there was nothing more that I enjoyed better than getting a, a suspect in the interview room and interviewing them, interrogating them all above board, post-Miranda if, they were, um, if we had actually arrested them, um, and getting a confession. There was nothing better than that. <laughs> After months of investigations or surveillance or whatever it was, I mean, work, you know, doing a site was great, but getting the bad guy to confess and sign that confession document, that was the best. But anyway, but this is the behind the scenes part of what makes all that work. And I would just encourage uh, officers and agents uh, and uh, obviously a number of uh, professional technical people already work in the building. But if you have an opportunity, come work in the building and learn how things uh, actually, ha- how, if the, as they say, the sauces gets made. Because I think that is what has enabled me to now be in this position. Having been in and out of, you know, GPA, IGL for all those years, uh, understanding the budget thoroughly, understanding how legislation gets passed, working with individuals, Republican staff, Democratic staff, House staff, running across the street to the Senate, dealing with DHS, dealing with OMB, you know, understanding, again, how things get done in this town, I think has given me the ability to position me well to hopefully be successful in this position. 
So again, our I know the director and our, our probably top goal outside of keeping our protectees safe, of course, is increasing the uh, the staffing here at the Secret Service and trying to get additional resources because uh, there are uh, it's not all about money, but we do need additional resources here to address different things that the Office of Investigation needs to keep up with all the cyber crimes that they're working now. Obviously, OPO and protection and what they're doing. We'd love to get additional resources for the National Computer Forensic Institute in Hoover, Alabama, or the Tulsa Cell Phone Fraud Lab out in uh, Tulsa. So, but again, you have to fight for those resources uh, amongst all the other agencies too. That's a question I'd like to ask you um, because you were talking about the recruitment aspect. For those people who may be listening that may be on the fence, you know, do you have any messages for them maybe that they're on that? This is the greatest job in the world. Now, I, I, all, I, I played baseball. only thing I professed to be to really play is baseball. I played hockey for about, I don't know, eight years. But I guess short of maybe being a professional athlete, I guess. Um, because, again, I go back to what I said earlier. Where else do you get to be in the alleys of Detroit on Wednesday? And literally 48 hours later, you're standing, at a, you're, you're standing on the property at this $50 million house. And no disrespect, but I don't really get wrapped up into the whole the, the movie star type thing. Mm-hmm. But how cool is that? And then the, the other thing is, again, we live history. So very often, uh, I am a big history buff. So very often I watch the History Channel and Nat- National Geographics and things like that. And I think it's Nat Geo. When Nat Geo, they show at the very beginning very iconic locations around the world. Uh, they'll show St. Basil's in the Red Square in Moscow. They'll show the Great Wall of China. They'll show Big Ben in London. They'll show the pyramids in Giza. They'll show the uh, opera house in Sydney, Australia. And one time I was watching and it was like, been there, been there, been there, been there. Yeah, rode camels around the pyramids, been there. Jogging through Red Square, been there. Been to the Great Wall of China, been to Big Ben, Parliament. How cool is that? You know, and I love it. And and I would encourage people, uh, for those listeners that, um, you know, outside of the Secret Service, to, you know, contact one of our recruiters. It, It is great. I will acknowledge, I mean, this, this is a lifestyle. This is not a job. This is way more than a career. This is a lifestyle. Uh, and I get and I understand and respect the fact that everybody doesn't want to travel and everybody doesn't want to move. It has been an honor and a privilege to work here um, at the Secret Service. And some of, I would argue some of the hardest working people, period, and definitely in federal government. You know, unfortunately, for whatever reason, sometimes federal employees get a bad rap and aren't sometimes thought of as hardworking individuals. <laughs> I know that's not the United States Secret Service. That's not our men and women of uniform division. That's not our APTs. That's not our agents. That's not the Secret Service. When you look at us, I mean, we're less than 8,000 employees uh, total, and we can go toe-to-toe with anybody. Uh, there's no doubt about it. No question about it. The men and women that we have in this agency are phenomenal. Their hard work, their dedication, their passion. And I would just encourage people that, you know, you, didn't, you don't necessarily have to come from a law enforcement background. 
You don't necessarily have to, you know, be prior military. Sure, of course. We love to, you know, when I was in recruitment for two and a half years, you know, loved to, to recruit people that were prior military if they were going to transition out of the military. Again, my dad was a former Marine. So love to have those men and women coming out of the military if they're going to transition out. Uh, of course, love to have uh, uh, our brothers and sisters from local and state uh, law enforcement if they're looking to make a change uh, to consider coming work for the Secret Service. Um, but again, you don't have to have had a prior career in law enforcement or a prior career in the military to come here and be successful. I can think of a number of individuals that have come here from the private sector um, that had no prior military or law enforcement and were extremely successful because I think it really boils down to hard work, dedication, and attitude. That's, at the end of the day, you you. you your attitude is so important. You have to be resilient. You, you, you really just have to stay focused. We all have good days and bad days. I'm no different. Sometimes you, you have an issue that you're trying to work through, and it can be very challenging. Again, when I was in GPA or, or IGL, and you'd go up on the hill, and some staffer would say, yeah, I don't think my boss can support this legislation. Well, you just, you just didn't pack up your folder and shrug your shoulders and say we couldn't do it got 8,000 people depending on you to get that legislation, whether it was a supermax legislation, whether it was the authorization for NCFI, um, or just appropriation, uh, various appropriations. You just, okay, you go back, you retool, and you hit it again the next day. You know, so again, I always tell people attitude is so important. I don't care if you're a GS5 just starting out in a field office, or if you're a brand new officer, just your attitude is, is so important. You can't necessarily sometimes control what happens to you, but how you react to it, you can control. And just stay focused. Sometimes, you know, chips don't always fall your way. I've been passed. Uh, I have not always gotten every assignment I ever put my hat in the ring for. I think things kind of worked out. Sir, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your busy schedule and also being the first deputy director of the Secret Service to be on the podcast to speak um, about your roles, responsibilities, your experiences, um, and sharing those with the listeners. But as always, I would like to leave my guests with the final message if there's anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we uh, close out the episode today. As I said earlier, absolutely humbled and honored to serve in this role um, as a 22nd deputy director to support Director Murray and all the men and women of this agency. And for, you know, people within inside the Secret Service that they may be listening, just know that, you know, the director, myself, and the entire executive staff work every day to, again, try to in, improve things here at the agency uh, to make this, con to continue to make this a better agency and to address uh, different issues that we have going on. For some of our law enforcement partners out there, I would say huge thank you. And to the military, thank you. Uh, very often we could not do what we do without the help of our brothers and sisters from city, county, and state law enforcement. Uh, so again, thank you. And to the military folks that assist us every day around the world, thank you. Again, other external people that may be interested, this is an excellent, outstanding agency. I would strongly encourage you to visit our website, uh, secretservice.gov. Read on the read up uh, the information that's on the website and contact our recruitment office. It, this is again, it's been 32 years that I've been here now. Again, I go back to that call. If, uh, who knows what would happen if DEA had called earlier? But I'm th uh, tremendously thankful that they did not. <laughs> uh, 
call before. Um, but I strongly encourage people, look into it. Contact our recruitment office. This is an absolutely fantastic agency. Uh, and the, I often tell people, beyond living history, we literally get to do and see things that you, you couldn't pay to do. The things that I've been able to see and do after 32 years, you, you literally can't pay to do some of those things. It has been a tremendous opportunity. I'm very humbled and thankful. And uh, when I attend the graduations for young agents or newer agents and officers, you know, I know my job is to continue to try to make this a great agency so for their careers, so they have, can hopefully have a, a great career uh, as I have. information or how to join, please go to www.secretservice.gov. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe and leave a review for our podcast on your player of choice. It goes a long way. Until next time, listeners, stay vigilant.